Today on Blue 58, the Packers have completed their roster and are already shuffling their practice squad. Let's hear from the man who made the moves before diving into some listener questions, including a real good one about Packers defensive coordinator Joe Barry. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. We've got a practice squad. We've got a 53-man roster and we're already making moves in Green Bay. No real surprises, I think, on the practice squad right now. Two small-ish ones, and we can talk about them each in turn. Chris Blair and Christian Uphoff. First, Blair, uh, the undrafted free agent out of uh, Alcorn State, uh, signed originally with the Packers back in January on a reserves future contract, uh, now is on the Packers practice squad. And it's a little bit of a surprise that they went with Blair, but you can see the appeal here. He's another big-bodied receiver. They didn't bring back Reggie Bagleton, want to go with somebody younger. He meets all of those things, plus he was a legit deep threat at Alcorn State. You can see what they're going for there. Athletic, fast, big body. That's a Brian Gutekunst receiver. Christian Uphoff, on the other hand, uh, was a bit of a surprise for me. Uh, I thought they seemed pretty high on him. I thought they seemed like uh, they were maybe angling for keeping five or potentially more safeties instead it's just four. And it's just Ennis Gaines making it to the practice squad. Now, if it comes down to one or the other, Gaines or Uphoff, I don't really have a preference. I can see why they only would keep one of those two. Uh, it is surprising to me, though, that, that we are here now in early September, and neither Uphoff or Gaines is on the 53, and only one of them, though, is on the practice squad. We have had one change to the practice squad already. Uh, Willington Prevalon is out after spending all of last year on the practice squad and getting elevated to the active roster a couple times, he's now gone in favor of long snapper Stephen Wirtel, 6'4", 228 pounds out of Iowa State, undrafted in 2020 after playing 51 games for the Cyclones. He has spent time previously with the Detroit Rams and the, or the Detroit Lions, excuse me, and the LA Rams. The Rams portion of that is, is noteworthy here in a second, but in the short term, you should be aware that he has been a pretty well-decorated long snapper throughout his uh, entire career to date. He just hasn't found a gig yet where he's really sticking in the NFL. Uh, he was all Big Ten first team in 2018 and 2019, was a well-recruited uh, long snapper dating back to his time in high school, was doing that regularly even in high school. Uh, he's been a long snapper through and through, more or less cameoed elsewhere during his time in high school. And uh, now he's in Green Bay. I think the Rams connection there is noteworthy because the Packers recently traded, obviously, for punter Corey Bajorquez. Now they can bring two-thirds of their battery together with some familiarity. They can have their long snapper, their holder, on the same page to begin with, having worked together in... Los Angeles, Mason Crosby is the only person who needs to figure anything out there, and that's just on uh, PATs and field goals. On punts, you've got Wirtel and Bajorquez working together. Hey, you're in good shape there. That seems like a a pretty good thing. And uh, there's just one thing in the way, and that is Hunter Bradley. Bradley, one of the first people who General Manager Brian Gutekunst addressed in his comments to the media this week about his completed roster. Talked a lot about just about everything. Three real nuggets jumped out to me. First, uh, Hunter Bradley. He talked 
I guess I, I want to say at length, not super at length, but about uh, longer than you'd expect about Bradley and his uh, his role on the roster. Bill Huber of Sports Illustrated asked, is Hunter Bradley still your long snapper? And Gutekunst was very quick to say yes, but then he followed that up by saying... I think in, in Hunter's time here in, in, what, it's three years now, I mean, he's been really consistent. And uh, in games, I think he's you know only had a handful of snaps that we would consider not great. Um, none that have really cost us. So I think you know Hunter's done a really good job for us, and, and he'll continue to be our snapper until we, you know, like, like I said before, unless we can find better. First, that's a real low bar. Well, he hasn't done anything that's really cost us so far. I would hope that Brian Gutekunst is evaluating the rest of his roster a little bit little bit tougher than that. And I think looking back over the past couple of years, there have been a couple of times where bad snaps from Bradley have cost them. Mason Crosby has, has missed a couple of kicks over the past couple of years because the snap and hold were not great, and most of it had to do with the snap. That doesn't seem like it meets the bar if he hasn't done anything that, that has really cost us so far. And I'm not really sure that's the, the threshold you want to be looking at anyway. Secondly, I'm not really sure that Jake Hansen has been the model of consistency. It's not difficult to find, like we've said, snaps that have not gone super well. And it's interesting that Gutekunst's first remarks there spoke to his consistency. That just seems like an odd thing to say of Hunter Bradley. Especially when the next day, Gutekunst goes out, signs another long snapper, puts him on the practice squad. You don't have to be a rock and scientist to put this together. Wirthel seems like he's going to be the guy sooner rather than later. They're going to find somebody they like better than, than Hunter Bradley, and they seem to have found somebody they like at least as well already. Next up was David Bakhtiari. Uh, it's not a surprise, a huge surprise, that Bakhtiari ended up on the physically unable to perform list. We've been predicting that for some time. I was somewhat intrigued about Brian Gutekunst putting a timeline on Bakhtiari's recovery, saying that it's between 9 and 11 months for most guys, but you have to evaluate everything individually. He seemed like he had really considered getting Bakhtiari to the 53. Take a listen yourself. You know, listening to, you know, Flea and Doc, it's really 9 to 11 is kind of the, the range in there. Um, but each case is individual, and I think you you got to look at it that way. Um, and I also just think, you know, like, you know, what he brings to our football team, you know, rushing him out there early was not going to be something that I was comfortable doing. Obviously, rushing is not something you want to do with, with an ACL injury with David Bakhtiari. So putting him on, on the physically unable to perform list um, right now is is the common sense thing to do. But it also seems clear that it at least crossed Gutekunst's mind to try to get him back on the active roster, if not for week one, at least at this point, so he'd be available without that six-week waiting period that comes with being on the physically unable to perform list. Finally, the, I thought it was interesting what Gutekunst had to say about Jake Hansen. He was our big question mark there on the offensive line. Why Jake Hansen? And Gutekunst really seems to like him, uh, saying they're, they're working him in a little bit at guard in addition to playing him in his traditional spot of center. I don't know about that. Uh, but he did offer an interesting nugget about a potential injury that Hansen has been dealing with since college. Uh, Gutekunst said that he dealt with it all last year after having it coming out of Oregon. I was not really able to substantiate the details on that injury. 
Uh, he was put on injured reserve late last season with an undisclosed injury, which is pretty unusual and uh, haven't been able to turn up much of substance on that, but perhaps somebody else has or will. Uh, but I, in my admittedly brief research on it, have not been able to turn anything up. Um, but moving past Hansen to the offensive line in general, Gutekunst later said that the offensive, offensive line in general has as much depth as he can remember. I strongly agree with that. In fact, I was thinking about it today, and I, I have a real hard time coming up with an example of when they've had this many options before. 2010, it feels like they had a pretty deep line, but that depth went away pretty quickly. 2016, they were able to withstand uh, cutting Josh Sitton right at the end of the preseason by just bumping Lane Taylor into the starting lineup. They went through a couple other interesting permutations of the offensive line there. Kyle Murphy starting a couple games at, at one point there. But I think overall, it's interesting just how how interior offensive line has become a strength for the Packers. We did a piece not all that long ago wondering if they would have any depth on the interior line. Now they have so much depth that we're wondering why they kept one backup interior offensive line guy instead of another. Now maybe none of these guys ultimately can play, but it doesn't seem like that's the case at this point. It seems like they've got a pretty good stable of guys, guys that are big, guys that are pretty athletic. It's it's an impressive group the Packers have up front and it seems like they've done a really good job assembling this offensive line as a whole. Now that we're through roster construction, I wanted to take some time and answer a few listener questions. I've gotten a few good ones in our Discord server lately. This is as good a time as any to remind you about the opportunity you have there to interact with with me, with fellow Packers fans from around the world. All you got to do is become a Patreon sponsor. We'll get you into the Discord server, patreon.com slash thepowersweep. Support at any amount. And uh, you will have access there as well as access to some bonus content like the Ask Me Anything mailbag we did this week. We're going to be trying to pump out as much bonus content for you as we can throughout the season. And uh, that is something that we have done this week. So check that out. Uh, Get involved. Get into the Discord server. Get your questions on the podcast. Though we do take questions from other sources as well. Uh, First question, though, right out of the gate. uh, Queso asks via Discord, has your opinion of Joe Barry changed at all over the offseason. It seems like back when it happened, people were very critical, but in recent months, the mood about him seems to have trended towards cautious optimism. It's funny that Queso would bring this up because I was just thinking about something similar myself. Last week was uh, reflecting on on how things are going with the Packers a little bit, I think, in, in doing some podcast prep, actually, and caught myself thinking about Joe Barry. What do we think about Joe Barry right now? And I thought to myself, a lot like Queso, uh, found myself wondering why I was feeling better about Joe Barry now than I did back when he was hired. Because really nothing has changed since the time he came on board and now. We've seen three games that don't really mean much. We've heard from him a couple times in press conferences, but really there's not a lot of substance there. So I was kind of checking my own feelings here. And Reflecting on the entire offseason, I think I've gone up, down, and sideways on Barry all over the place. Sometimes I like him, sometimes I don't. Some of the things that have made me like him more were just a little bit more research into the scheme in general. Uh, The philosophy that goes into the Vic Fangio scheme, building back to front, uh, stopping the pass first and then the run, not relying or having to rely on on heavy boxes to stop the run uh, because of what they're doing with aggressive fills by safeties and things like that. 
Also feeling more positive, you know, as you hear from Packers fan or Packers players, not Packers fans, Packers players, what they think of the scheme, what they think of of Joe Barry, his enthusiasm, his energy, that counts for something. You don't know how much it counts for, but it's not nothing. There is something to that. And then talking to a guy like Cody Alexander, as we did a couple a couple weeks back, hearing about how this sort of philosophy, this scheme in particular, is really kind of the the rising the rising thing in the NFL and in college football. A lot more people are approaching things this way as a response to the way that offenses in general are going throughout all of football. On the other side, I'm a little bit worried about how the scheme matches up with the personnel that the Packers have. It's it's always a bit of an open question how players are going to fit into what a coach wants to do. And the Packers haven't made a ton of substantive changes on defense, players-wise, that would give you a lot of confidence that they're going to be better in, in that aspect. They've upgraded, at least theoretically, at one corner spot, drafting Eric Stokes, Stokes presumably to take over for Kevin King. They've signed Devondre Campbell, who in some ways, is is going to be similar to Blake Martinez, not necessarily a playmaker, but um, at least not making your defense actively worse, and he's going to do all the things that you ask of him. But beyond that, it's basically the same group that gave up 31 points in the NFC Championship game. On top of that, uh, Joe Barry himself has never coordinated a particularly good defense. The teams that he worked with in Detroit and Washington were not very good teams overall, but it doesn't seem like Barry raised the talent level at all there either, helped them achieve beyond their means. Just some stuff that that sits in the back of my mind a little bit. Then if you talk about up, down, and sideways, there is the sideways aspect, stuff that's not good or bad, but just kind of rattles around in my head. First, that Sean McVay didn't promote Barry when Brandon Staley left. He had him right there in the building. Instead, he just let Barry go and be an assistant coach for Brandon Staley. Sean McVay is considered a pretty smart coach. Why wasn't there more interest there? Why wasn't there more interest in Joe Barry from the get-go in Green Bay? Don't forget, he was not Matt LaFleur's top choice. Jim Leonard in Wisconsin was. And that's going to always be an sort of interesting side avenue of this uh, of this entire saga. It could have been Jim Leonard. He was offered the job and turned it down. And so now we have Joe Barry. That's not to say Jim Leonard would have been great. That's not to say Joe Barry can't be good. But there is at least one alternate scenario out there. So to actually answer the question... I don't know if my opinion of Joe Barry has changed a lot over the offseason. I don't know if I'm necessarily in a different place now than I was. Between then and now, I feel like it's gone all over the place. Uh, But still, I guess I'm I'm ultimately a little bit confused. And, And maybe that is a slightly better position than I was back when Barry was hired. But still, uh, it feels like there may have been some other better options out there, and uh, there are still some legitimate questions about Barry. QHM asks in Discord, most non-Packers media that I've listened to looks at the Packers as the best non-serious football, uh, Super Bowl threat. 
they sort of have the attitude of, yeah, they're good and we'll win a bunch of games, probably be seated well in the playoffs, but we'll never actually go the distance. Besides the obvious history of losing NFC Championship games, why do you think this is? Good question. I think some of it is perception being reality type stuff. For whatever reason, it feels like the Packers are perceived as non-elite for some reason. And I think the reason for that is they don't have a ton of big names outside of Aaron Rodgers. Devontae Adams has just recently arrived on the national scene as someone a lot of people respect and, and hold high opinions of. David Bakhtiari, well, we think is great, and well, football knowers you know, across the country think he's great, offensive linemen don't really move the needle for most people. Same kind of with Aaron Jones. He's not as flashy as some of the other big-name running backs, and the league as a whole is kind of moving away from running backs in general as being big stars. On the flip side, it's, it's hard to build cachet and credibility on defense. Who are the Packers' biggest defensive stars? Probably Kenny Clark and Jair Alexander. I don't think either of them are moving the needle nationally yet. Jair Alexander may at some point, maybe as soon as this year, but not yet. And I don't think Kenny Clark is is there yet either. And even if he was, how big a superstar are you really going to expect for the, the national talking heads uh, to make out of a essentially a nose tackle? I mean, if he had a fun shtick like, uh, like Gilbert Brown, I think maybe you'd have a little bit more upside there in terms of getting the Packers into the national conversation from that respect, but he's not there yet. And uh, I think that's that's one reason the Packers haven't gotten a lot of the Super Bowl favorite sort of talk, even though I think they deserve to be in that that uh, that category. Another thing is they lost their last game in pretty gut punch fashion, and they lost it to a guy that a lot of the media cannot help but talk about as the greatest football player ever, Tom Brady. Brady didn't play well in that game. The Packers should have won because Brady played badly. But in the end, you still have the storyline that the Packers lost to the GOAT. Ugh, can't even believe that I said that out loud. Um, But there is some hangover there, and that shapes narratives. We've also got some playing the results. Bill Barnwell did another big piece on regression for ESPN, and guess who he mentioned once again as a potential regression candidate? The Green Bay Packers. Here was his closing statement on the Packers this year. It took Rodgers improving by 31.8 points of QBR and the Packers producing the most dominant red zone offense in decades for them to even maintain their 13-3 record from 2019. Rodgers isn't going to suddenly fall back to his 2018-19 level of play, but what happens if a guy who's turning 8 in December doesn't, 38 in December, doesn't play at an MVP level? How will the offense be impacted if left tackle David Bakhtiari isn't ready to start the season after tearing his ACL or if star edge rusher Zedarius Smith misses time with a back issue? There is a stronger case for the Packers to decline heading into 2020 than there is heading into 2021, and I'm almost excited to see how they could find a way to elude history again this upcoming season, but they are likely to take a small step backward and finish around 11 wins. I think... This I, I use the phrase play, playing the results, and it seems like the, they're doing this again. The Packers, sure, probably overachieved a little bit in 2019. But they brought back the same guys and were somehow, I'd say that with some sarcasm, somehow even better in 2020. I don't know why that was such a big surprise. It, it 
was seemed equally probable that the Packers could build on 19 and be better in 2020. And guess what? They were. Maybe the Packers aren't historically great in the in the red zone again. Maybe early season injuries to Bakhtiari and Zadarius Smith play a big issue. But do you really think they're going to double their losses from last year? That's what it would take for them to get to 11 wins. Playing in the NFC North with non-serious team, the Detroit Lions, with still rebuilding team, Chicago Bears, with the Minnesota Vikings and their ongoing biology experiment with their quarterback. I mean, that's probably at least four right there. Maybe they sweep again. Do they really only collect five other wins in their remaining 11 games? They're going to go under 500 or around 500 in their other 11 games? It just seems like a stretch. Playing the results, a bad loss to end of the season, and just not a lot of big names other than Aaron Rodgers, I think contributes a lot to that attitude about the Packers not maybe being a super serious Super Bowl contender. QHM asks a good follow-up question to that. To what extent do you think the run game, especially early in the season, pending a David Bakhtiari return, will look different? Last year, we were able to run quite aggressively between the tackles with high success rates, but this year with losing Lindsley and Jenkins shifting outside, I think it would. I don't think it would be unreasonable to assume we won't have the same success up the middle. And as a second part to that question, do you think Lafleur will anticipate this and adapt to play schemes to help the guys out? Let's answer the second part first. Absolutely. Matt Lafleur is going to do things a little bit differently this year. He's going to play to the personnel he's got, and he's going to do everything he can to get those personnel in the best positions they can to succeed. So I think that looks like uh, more screens, uh, more maybe wide zone than inside zone. But overall, I don't think there's going to be all that much of a change, honestly. The Packers still have a strong offensive line. They have good contributors uh, inside in, in Runyon, Myers, and Newman, who, although they are young, are capable and qualified to do the job. They still have got Billy Turner, who is solid, if not spectacular. And they've got Elton Jenkins, who is spectacular. This is still a pretty strong offensive line. There may be some bumps early, and they may be going outside a little bit more early. But I, I think it is still going to be a solid run game. Um, maybe less inside, but still, that is it's something that you can do and scheme up. So I, I don't know if it's going to be a huge departure. But again, the bottom line is that Lafleur is going to put his people in the best position he can to succeed. Uh, finally, a question circling back to long snappers from Nate Falk on Twitter. John, as my go-to source for long snapping expertise, do you get any sense uh, why this guy, meaning Stephen Wartell, uh, didn't stick with his prior two teams? Really simple answer here, though it may not be the correct one, but pretty simple. I think it's because that long snapper is a difficult position to really differentiate yourself. I don't think there's a lot of difference between one long snapper who's on an NFL roster and another guy who may not be on the roster. It is such a specific, it's such a specialized position that I think it's, uh, it's, ta- it's hard to really, to really stand out. And as a result, I think it's a lot harder to unseat an incumbent than it would be at a different position. Say wide receiver. 
you come in as a sixth, seventh round draft pick, you know, a, a lightly recruited guy, you're going up against a veteran who was on the receiver or on the on the team last year. He might be the third, fourth, fifth guy on the depth chart, and here you are just trying to make it on the roster. What can you do to make the roster as a, a receiver in the preseason? Well, you can make some big plays against some, you know, guys who aren't going to be on NFL rosters. You can flash physical abilities. You can make a couple of spectacular catches on the sideline. What do you do as a long snapper, though? You just snap the ball. You do your job exactly the same way as you would any other time. There's no way to really stand out. And as a result, the guy in front of you pretty much has to lose his job for you to get one. And lo and behold, what do we have here in Green Bay? Hunter Bradley potentially losing his job. Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, chapter, what is it now? 21. The no-huddle offense. Back to the offensive side of the ball as we come to the nearly bitter end here of Tim Layden's fine book. Hope you enjoyed our tour through this book. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. This is one of my favorite football books, and it was fun to go through it again. I have a confession to make, though, as we talk about the no-huddle offense. I don't particularly like watching a no-huddle offense work. Tim Layden says here that it seems like a better version of the sport. I'm not sure that's true. Sometimes watching a two-minute drill feels sloppy. Sometimes it feels like you're scoring because you're lucky, not because you're executing at a high level. I like those end-of-half, end-of-game drives that are just outside the two-minute drill, though. Not where they're playing super fast, but where every snap counts. Maybe something that starts with like three and a half or four minutes or something like that. It takes a good long time. You can take a good long time working your way down the field, you know, getting out of bounds, stopping the clock, but huddling if you need to. Every snap feeling like a, a enormously important pitch in a baseball game. Just waiting for that snap of the ball, hanging on everything that happens. That's what I really like. That ultra speed stuff is is not my cup of tea. But it's interesting to see how the no huddle uh, has developed. This may be the peak example of the, they've always been doing this sort of thing, but one guy made it famous. Layden points out that there is written evidence of the no huddle offense being coached as far back as 1927, which means for sure they were using it well before then. That's amazing. Pop Warner writing about the no huddle offense in the 1920s. Layden is careful to refer to Johnny Unitas as John Unitas. That shows Layden's age a little bit, but also who he's talking to for this book. Almost none of the people who actually knew Johnny Unitas called him Johnny. Most people called him John. And that's a, a little nugget that shows up in this book. That's kind of a, if you know, you know, sort of thing. And Layden knows. Uh, this chapter talks a lot about uh, Sam Wyke, how he popularized the no-huddle offense with the Bengals in the 1980s. The Bengals ended up hiring Wyke away from Bill Walsh in San Francisco, which is funny because the Bengals tried and tried to try to keep Walsh from ever growing as a coach and ever leaving, and then they ultimately are trying to get his guys to run their football program after Walsh leaves and the guy that they hired to be their head coach, Forrest Gregg, turns out to not be all that great. Wyke is an interesting cat. I love the nuggets about him. I loved especially looking up the historical context 
of what was going on when uh, he talks about White getting on the mic, White on the mic, uh, and telling fans in Cincinnati to quiet down. In the 80s and early 90s, it was actually against the rules for home teams to make too much noise that prevented offenses from doing their job. It seems bananas to think about now, since it's just kind of part of the furniture watching an NFL game. You expect teams to be too loud for opposing teams to work. Why would you do them any favors? But at the time when White did that, they were in danger of being penalized for being too loud, which is insane. So Wyke runs all the way across the field, gets a microphone, gets on the public address system and, and asks people to quiet down. And we have the audio. Just listen to how it went down. Will the next person that sees anybody throw anything onto this field, point them out, or get them out of here. You don't live in Cleveland. You kind of understand a little bit about why, even though he was not super successful, he was at times a pretty popular guy. And I had a chance to watch a couple other interviews with him. Very, very personable. Look him up. He's very, very entertaining. Uh, and you see why he stuck around in football for as long as he did. I loved his quote about how you win in football. Quote, you're looking for the 2% edge, the surprise of the safety blitz, the surprise of having 4th and 12 on your own 25 and going for it. These things are sound. They work. End quote. That 2% edge is so important. You're not trying to be 50% better than your opponent. You're just trying to be a little bit better than your opponent. Get that small edge. What does it take to get that small edge? Well, Boomer Esiason has a good quote about it. He said of the no-huddle offense, quote, every week was a final exam, but the thing it did best was create indecision in the defense. And any indecision on their side of the ball was to our advantage, end quote. This is crucial for every offense. And we talked about this with the, with the option as well. Getting the defense to think is just as good as getting them blocked. If you can make a linebacker take a false step, if you can make a safety linger a little bit too long in the middle of the field, if you can get a cornerback to peek into the backfield, you've already won and you haven't even touched them. That is what the the no huddle offense can do really well. You get the defense confused and suddenly they start making mistakes. Good chapter. I like this one. The next one's a real doozy because this book came out in what, 2011, 2012? The thing that Layden talks about in the final chapter of Blood, Sweat, and Chalk has already come and gone in football. The A11 offense. I'm excited to talk about with you next week. But in the meantime, that's all I've got for you right now. I appreciate you listening in. I appreciate you following with along with us all off season. Next off season or next week is real. We're talking about leading up to game day, and that's pretty exciting. I've got a good interview coming for you next week as well too. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so watch out for that uh, in your podcast feed on Thursday. Uh, for right now, if you enjoyed this show, if you think somebody else would enjoy it as well, go ahead and share it with them. That's going to help this show continue to grow. It's going to get more people involved in the conversation you, me, and everybody else is having around the Packers, which ultimately helps all of us, including me, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.